you have your hymnal, I, I keep forgetting to tell you to just hold on to that. Turn to page 671 in the hymnal, please. 671. Because that's where our confession of faith is in the back there. We're almost finished with our uh, series walking through chapter 1 of the 1689 Confession. Uh, chapter 1 is all about the Holy Scriptures, the doctrine of Scripture. And, and you know, this doctrine, um, when we're going at this level, paragraph by paragraph, it can get a little tedious at times. I realize that it's um, it requires uh, sustained attention. But I trust as we make sure our foundations are there, and make sure we're all hearing the same thing together as the people of God, that um, we will profit even if we don't see uh, directly maybe how that will happen this week. Um, but you never know uh, what God's people will be faced with to shake their confidence in the Scriptures and their understanding of how to use the Scriptures. So I trust, uh, as we're wrapping up the series, that the Lord is, is showing, up, showing up our foundations and uh, being sure we have that platform on which to build the rest of our doctrine. Paragraph 9, on page 671 there, is a brief paragraph. We'll see if that means we're brief today or not. <laughs> uh, hopefully we will be. But I'll just read paragraph 9 first of all, and then we'll explain it, talk about it. It says, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which, meaning the sense, is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. And uh, in, in most of the copies I see of the confession, they footnote two references. One is Second Peter 1, 20-21. One is Acts 15, 15 through 16. Well, uh, so first of all, let me just read those texts they referenced. And of course, if you want to turn there, that's uh, fine. If you just want to listen, that's fine too. Second uh, Peter 1 should be a very familiar text for us about doctrine of Scripture, of course. I'll back up to verse 19 and read through verse 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now some have taken verse 20 at times to talk about how. No one should have their own private uh, interpretation of Scripture uh, that, that's just their own u unique, weird thing. Uh, that's true. That shouldn't happen. But I think the point here that Peter's making is no prophecy of Scripture when it was written down happened, came because someone on their own that called themselves a prophet was looking at events and interpreting them themselves. Um, scripture is not some... Some man, it's not Moses' private viewpoint as a man. It's not Paul's private viewpoint. Uh, but rather, it says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as Moses is writing about the Exodus, he's not interpreting that event according to his own ideas. God, the Holy Spirit, is bearing him along to speak exactly what God says on the subject. So though though there are human authors of Scripture, um, their authorship we could almost call secondary, though God greatly used their personalities, their backgrounds, all of that to inform how they wrote what they wrote. But every word of Scripture is breathed out by the Spirit of God, as, of course, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's breathed out by God. So God is the primary author of Scripture. In fact, he is absolutely the author of Scripture in that every word is his word. And so, as the Confession says in paragraph 9, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. If this is God speaking, there's no higher authority to appeal to, to to sit in judgment on or to interpret what God said. When God interprets himself, we better listen, right? When God in one Scripture says something about what he said in another Scripture, that's God interpreting his own word for us. Uh, Also, Acts 15 Verses 13 through 17. Um, We've been here uh, to this text also recently, uh, going through the confession. It's an example where James, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus, brother of the Lord, uh, an elder in the church of Jerusalem, appeals to Scripture to settle the matter at the Jerusalem Council. After Paul and Barnabas had finished speaking, uh, Acts 15, 13, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, meaning Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So there, obviously, is one of many examples in Scripture of, um, in this case, this is still in the New Testament era, when God is still doing a new thing with the new covenant, but God's work then is interpreted by what God has already said in the Old Testament Scripture. And that's that's, uh, the final authority for James, the Old Testament Scripture. It has to line up with that. Well, let's explain the paragraph in a little more detail here. Uh, you sort of have um, you you have a major point and a minor point within that that bigger point, uh, both made. The major point here is what we I'll explain in a little bit. Uh, what's been called the analogy of Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture to interpret Scripture. Scripture is its own infallible interpreter. Uh, then, then a small point that's kind of inserted in parentheses in the middle of it is that the true and full sense of any scripture is not manifold, but one. That is, there, there, is, a, there is a unified uh, meaning to any, any text of scripture. And it's not that someone can come and 
and find one meaning there that's true, and then someone else can come and find a, a disconnected meaning <laughs> that's, that's then also true in a different way. No, um, the sense of any scripture is not manifold but one. So we'll talk about that. John Ruther, <clears throat> in um, one of the new expositions that have come out on this confession, he writes that these words were written against the background of the Roman Catholic dogma that the church is the only infallible ter- interpreter of scripture and the final judge of the meaning of scripture. This is heretical teaching. The Bible is the final interpreter and believers who possess the Holy Spirit can attain to the true meaning of the scriptures. The Church of Rome and any other religious body that asserts its indispensability for the interpretation of scripture is in error. End of quote. He's correct, um, as we'll see others say it too. Uh, really, probably the form- foremost thing in the minds of those who wrote the Westminster Confession and then um, our Baptist forefathers who then basically copied that word for word for our confession. The thing pr- probably front and center in their minds was uh, the rival claimant to be the infallible interpreter. <laughs> uh, the church, and of course by the church, Rome meant the magisterium, the priesthood with the pope at the top. They would have said... Uh, that's the infallible interpreter. So you need, you cannot read the Bible without having it interpreted for you by the Pope and his system. <laughs> that's what they would have been saying. And they and Rome tended at that point in time to to stress the idea that Scripture is too complex for the ordinary Christian to interpret. Um, without the input of, of Rome. <laughs> uh, that's the direction they would go. And uh, we'll see how that plays out in you know, how they would talk about manifold senses of, of any scripture. As Dr. Sam Waldron has noted before, uh, watch a brief video, you know, he does these brief videos about different parts of the confession and they're worth seeing. Uh, he mentioned, of course, that it's not just Rome's priesthood that's not the infallible interpreter of Scripture. There's other things we could put in that in that role as what's not the infallible interpreter. Um, in our day, we should also maintain it's not a particular view of science or a philosophy that um, that needs to be our lens through which we see Scripture. Current evolutionary theory cannot dictate to us how we can and cannot read Genesis, for instance. Um, and people's philosophies and ideas about, well, current gender theory. <laughs> uh, that cannot be the lens through which we read what the Bible clearly says on its own and for itself. Of course, those are very different things than the Roman Catholic priesthood and the magisterium. But um, again, people... Different people at different times, different places try to substitute in something else when the scripture is just fine on its own, interpreting itself. So, if the Ten Commandments affirm that the days of creation were normal days, so should we. <laughs> Despite what modern science may um, say otherwise. If Jesus affirms that marriage is for one man and one woman for life, and that there are only two genders, so should we. <laughs> no matter what the current theory is out there that people want to say is, is more reliable. 
But of course, we see those who claim to be part of the Christian church all the time violating that, uh, wanting to somehow hold on to the scriptures in some sense, but just reinterpret them based on some other authority that they're really clinging to like that. We dare not use the word of man to reinterpret God's word or to deny God's own word about his word. If God spoke through the Apostle Paul, we, we cannot discount Paul's written interpretations of other scriptures, even though the current academy may regard Paul's views as hopelessly out of touch uh, with our progressive standards of thought. Trust you get the point. Jim Renahan, in his book on the Confession, uh, says about this paragraph, Scripture alone is the infallible interpreter of Scripture. This is known as the analogy of Scripture. It teaches us that though there may be many things that help us to understand the Scriptures, and I'm, I'm pausing the quotation, there are, of course, uh, I, I do study commentaries. <laughs> I, I do get input from geography books and history books and all that. That, that can help, but they're not infallible interpreters, right? Uh, so continuing with what Jim Renahan says, um, though there may be many things that help us understand the scriptures, the final and authoritative interpreter of scripture must be itself. Nothing else partakes of divine authority. Nothing can stand above the scripture as its judge. All must bow before it. In addition, it must be recognized, and here he goes to the other thing that was thrown in into this paragraph, or added to it. He says, um, in addition, it must be recognized that there is but, but a single sense of Scripture. At the end of the day, we confess that there is one body of doctrine in Scripture. It teaches one thing. When confronted with a difficult passage, Christians are to resort to other, clearer places so as to understand the sense of the first. Heresies arise when interpreters fail to follow this rule. Now, Joel Beakey and Mark Jones, in their book, A Puritan Theology, they, they also have, uh, again, good input, reminding us of the historical context here, why this paragraph was penned this way. Here they're talking about the Westminster, which is, which is identical here. The Westminster Confession of Faith makes some important points about the interpretation of Scripture, including chapter 1, paragraph 9. They say, behind the words of the Westminster Confession is the Protestant rejection of the medieval exegetical method known as the quadriga, or fourfold sense. Edward Lay notes that in this view, the literal sense is that which is gathered immediately out of the words, which is then coupled with the spiritual sense, divided into allegorical, tropological, and anagogical. So you got four senses of one scripture. Um, th that was a, something that had developed slowly but surely during, during the medieval era, so that it was at the point where the emphasis was no longer on, um, was no longer on the single sense of scriptures it needed to be, but okay, we can go to, to this and get the literal meaning um, in a, let's say, in a narrative from Genesis like we were in this morning. <laughs> Jacob literally went uh, on his journey and literally had a dream, etc., etc. But then there's these three other uh, things that are brought in that weren't always kept tied that well to the, the literal meaning. Um. 
Francis Turretin, uh, writing, uh, he was um, he was an old reform stalwart in Geneva. He's, he wrote this, The papists, in order to force upon us another visible judge of controversies, that is, the church and the pope, besides the scriptures and the Holy Spirit speaking in them, attribute a manifold sense to them, and hence infer that they are doubtful and ambiguous. Again, here's the point. If there's so many sort of hidden things there, the common man can't understand the scriptures without, without the whole tradition of the church interpreting it for them, you see. If there's a manifold sense there, it gets more complex, and it's an extra excuse for the, the, the church separate from the laity to, to be the gatekeepers of interpretation. Uh, Turretin goes on. Therefore they distinguish between the literal and the mystical sense and divide this last into three parts, allegorical, tropological, and agogical. <laughs> and uh, if you want to know what Rome currently says about this, they still like to talk about this fourfold sense. This is from their current catechism, which you can find online. They, <laughs> the, the heading for this part of the Catholic catechism is the senses, plural, of Scripture. They say, according to an ancient tradition, note the importance of uh, the level they put tradition at in their system, according to an ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of Scripture, the literal and the spiritual, the latter being subdivided into the allegorical, moral, and anagogical senses. Uh, the profound concordance of the four senses guarantees all its richness to the living reading of Scripture in the church. Um, next paragraph. The literal sense is the meaning conveyed by the words of Scripture and discovered by exegesis following the rules of sound interpretation. And they, and they say all other senses of sacred Scripture are based on the literal. But then they go on. The spiritual sense. Thanks to the unity of God's plan, not only the text of Scripture, but also the realities and events about which it speaks can be signs. And they say the allegorical sense. Uh, or they break down the spiritual sense, sorry. So there's literal and spiritual, and then under spiritual there's three subcategories. Number one, the allegorical sense. Uh, the, the Catholic Catechism says, we can acquire a more profound understanding of events by recognizing their significance in Christ. Thus the crossing of the Red Sea is a sign or type of Christ's victory and also of Christian baptism. Number two, the moral sense. The events reported in Scripture ought to lead us to act justly. As St. Paul says, they were written for our instruction. So the moral sense would be, what? so how should you live in light of this text? Number three, the anagogical sense. From the Greek, anagoge, leading. We can view realities and events in terms of their eternal significance, leading us toward our true homeland. Thus, the church on earth is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem. And then they, I won't continue, but they give a medieval rhyme that summarized how to remember what the four senses are about. <clears throat> um, one other Puritan era guy, Whitaker, said this. He said, as to those three spiritual senses, it is surely foolish to say that there are as many senses of Scripture as the words themselves may be transferred to bear. For although the words may be applied and accommodated tropologically, allegorically, anagogically, or any other way, yet there are not therefore various senses, various interpretations and explications of Scripture, 
But there is but one sense, and that the literal, which may be variously accommodated, that is, applied, and from which various things may be collected. So there, there was an emphasis in the Reformation not on never again seeing typology in Scripture, not on never again seeing where there really is an allegory there, Galatians 4, for instance. Uh, they didn't just do away with typology and allegory and all that. But um, there was an emphasis in the Reformation coming back to, to the one meaning of the text and then being sure everything is very carefully tied to that one meaning. And what, what really bound together the, the sense and the point of Scripture for, for the Puritans and the Reformers? What was really at the heart of that for them? Well, it was Christ. <laughs> um, again, Joel Beakey and Mark Jones, they say, Thus their covenantal reading of the Bible, whereby history is divided up into two basic covenants, works and grace, meant that they were consciously reading the Scriptures with a Christ-centered lens which was seen in their use of typology and, at times, allegory. They rejected the many senses of Scripture, the so-called quadriga. But their writings certainly show that they were often keen to press home the fuller sense of certain passages, which may have multiple layers of meanings and has a legitimate application of the literal meaning, and was a legitimate application of the literal meaning. Their view that the scriptures were internally consistent and that most theological truths had to be gathered out of more than one place in the Bible made the basic principles of the analogy of faith and good and necessary consequence an indispensable part of their hermeneutic. So, that was a lot. Um, But again, what binds the scripture together in its central point? It's Christ and his covenants. And then everything flows out from there. Louis Burkhoff, um, who wrote his um, book on principles of biblical interpretation in 1950, a uh, reformed guy from the Grand Rapids area, he said, It is of the greatest importance to understand at the outset that Scripture has but a single sense and is therefore susceptible to a scientific and logical investigation. This fundamental principle must be placed emphatically in the foreground. In opposition to the tendency revealed in history and persisting in some quarters even up to the present time to accept a manifold sense, a tendency that makes any science of hermeneutics impossible and opens wide the door for all kinds of arbitrary interpretations. He says the delusion respecting a multiple sense originated largely in a misunderstanding of some of the important features of scripture, such as figurative language, its mysterious and incomprehensible elements its symbolical facts, rites, and actions, its prophecies with a double or triple fulfillment, and its types of coming realities. But he maintains that there's a single sense of Scripture. For one thing, Burkhoff says, um, this is just the way human language works. It's absolutely foreign to the character of human language, he says, that a word should have two, three, or even more significations in the same connection. If this were not so, all communication among men would be utterly impossible, he says. So there, I I think I kind of got the heavy stuff uh, loaded out front there for you. Um, But at this point, uh, we'll sum it up and we'll give some illustrations from Scripture of what the paragraph is talking about. 
So the single sense of Scripture will guard us uh, not only against the sorts of things I've already mentioned, but single sense of Scripture will guard us against those who claim to reveal a deeper sense of Scripture, whether it's like a Gnostic doctrine that's hidden in there somewhere, or a secret code in the text. I remember, I think it was the 90s, early 2000s, stuff about Bible codes. <laughs> um, the single sense of Scripture will guard us against stuff like that. Um, because people will say, well, there's, there's this, this deeper sense that can't be accessed using normal exegetical interpretation. You have to have the secret keys to this. It's in there. <laughs> no. If it's not connected to the single sense of Scripture, it's not valid. Uh, there's not this layer up here for the common people. Well, yeah, this is the nice story that everyone thinks the Bible's really about. But then under the surface, <clears throat> here's the real truth. <laughs> it's not like that. And again, if Scripture has a unified, definite meaning, every part of Scripture can shed light on every other part of Scripture. Um, so Dan McCartney and Charles Clayton put it this way. They say, Augustine's maxim that Scripture is interpreted by Scripture is simply to say that God determines the meaning of his own words. This is not an opening up of Pandora's box, but a control on meaning. It confines the meaning of any text to that which fits with the rest of Scripture. This results in two obvious yet important hermeneutical principles. First, obscure passages of Scripture should be interpreted in the light of clear passages. So, <clears throat> if you're trying to figure out your eschatology, don't go to Daniel 9 first. <laughs> go to Matthew 24 and plainer places where Jesus just lays it out for you. Then figure out the harder texts. Um, second, whenever a New Testament writer explicitly interprets an Old Testament text, this interpretation is true. End of quote. Uh, the, so let's illustrate this with a, a few texts. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And most of these examples at this point I'm, uh, are illustrating that second point they made uh, based on this, this principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. Therefore, we ought to listen when the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. Acts 2, starting in verse 14. On the day of Pentecost, when people are speaking in tongues, that is, languages they haven't learned... It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Did you know, even after my first round of seminary, um, I struggled with this because I had, well, my professors were divided in my first seminary experience. Um, Some of them found all sorts of ways to say, well, Peter's not really interpreting Joel 2 for us. He's kind of taking it and somehow applying it to his own situation. But he's not really saying this is a fulfillment directly of Joel. Why? Because it didn't fit their dispensational system. <laughs> um, now, some of them were uh, were a little better and said, well, uh, not sure how this fits with our system. We have to work that out. But yes, he is talking about a fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is that, Peter says. Um, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. You're looking at Pentecost. You want to know what this is about? Well, this is this is the fulfillment of Joel 2. And if that doesn't fit with your theological system, you need to change your system. But this is an example of uh, us needing to listen to what God says. If we go to Joel 2 and say, this is saying all sorts of cool things about the end times and Israel and the land. And we, we, we're, off, we're off to the races with our own interpretation of this. And we haven't looked at what God himself said it's about. We're going to be way off track, right? Uh, similarly, Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Galatians 3, 7 through 9. And here I'm just taking two texts that you should be very familiar with, almost, almost uh, tired of because we keep coming back to them as we go through Genesis. <laughs> People want to know what what it's about in Genesis when God tells Abraham, and you shall all the nations be blessed. Well, that means Christians have to affirm everything the modern state of Israel does, because they're the seed of Abraham, and it's in them that, that God will bless everyone. Is that what he's saying? Well, Paul... And as we've said, it's not just Paul, it's God speaking through Paul, told us what those promises were about. Galatians 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So if, if you go to Genesis and there's no way in your mind that you can tie God's promises to Abraham, these specific promises, to the gospel and the Gentiles receiving the gospel, then you're just off track. God says so. Similarly, Romans 4, 16 through 18. Paul says that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And Paul is including the Gentiles at Rome in this. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So again, I guess I'm using a safe example here because 
I'm not in a dispensational church, okay? <laughs> but there's a lot of good believers have some really interesting ideas based on God's promises to Abraham. Uh, but often they only see when they read Genesis, so shall your offspring be. Well, that's talking about how big the nation of Israel is going to get. Well, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. <laughs> you have to listen to what God himself said on the matter in the New, Te- in the New Testament. <clears throat> Louis Burkhoff, I'm sorry, not Louis Burkhoff. <clears throat> Get these names mixed up. Gerhardus Voss, call him the father of Reformed Biblical Theology. Uh, the illustration he uses, he uses a doctrinal illustration of the analogy of Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture. He uses the doctrine of particular atonement, that Jesus died specifically as a substitute for the elect, Right? Uh, He uses that doctrine to illustrate how this analogy of Scripture works. He says, Our principle should always be that Scripture is to be explained by Scripture. Now, if we have a series of texts that teach the particular or restricted scope of satisfaction, that Christ died specifically for certain people, uh, uh, and specifically for the sheep, the elect, and beside them a series of texts that seem to mention a universal intention... The one must agree with the other. Now, everyone can see that the texts of the first category, dying for specific people, lose their meaning and become totally inexplicable when one forces through the universal scope of Christ's work. But one cannot maintain the reverse. The passages of Scripture with a more universal ring still retain a clear meaning and by no means become inexplicable when they are considered from the standpoint of particular satisfaction. So again, he's using it as an illustration of how we compare uh, scriptures that seem to say one thing with scriptures that seem to say the other thing. We have to harmonize them and see what, uh, if if it's if it is a choice. Sometimes sometimes there's more than the choices we see on the table. Yes, but if it really is a choice between two ways to take it, you see which sense better make makes better harmony out of the whole thing. That's the way this works. So, the practical point is very simple. Is there a Bible text you don't understand? Keep reading. Keep reading. The answer to your question in Genesis may be in Proverbs. The answer to your difficulty in the Gospels may be in the Epistles. Etc. Because the same divine author wrote all of it. This is, this is a supernaturally self-consistent library with a single unified message. Um, just in closing, as my own silly little illustrations, uh, the first one that everyone likes to use is, uh, you wouldn't start reading a novel, would you? Um, and you start reading the storyline, and you can't figure something out at the beginning. And you just read the first chapter and like, I don't understand. There's too many things, unanswered questions I have at this point. I'm just going to stop reading the book. If you read the book farther, usually a lot of your questions get answered, right? Even more so if it's like a mystery novel. Um, someone, 
one of my loved ones, who's not here today, not, not one of those loved ones, one of my loved ones liked to cheat and skip ahead to the end of the book. And I'm like, uh, how is that, how is that fun? You just destroyed the whole purpose of reading the book. I have to know what happens. And I'm too, I'm, I'm too impatient. <laughs> but you compare the things written by the same author. But my really silly illustration is, again, I won't name names in my family. But some people, when they're watching a movie, all these questions are coming out, out loud. Why do they do that? Is he going to die? And uh, some, some of these people are, are older than me. Some are younger. Um, I think some family traits got passed along. Not embarrassing anyone here. But you know what uh, Teresa and I often uh, say or want to say, depending on the context? Keep watching the movie. Your questions will probably be answered if you keep watching the movie. Because this is all one story. And your questions will be answered later in the story. But you see how that applies, right? If you don't understand the Old Testament, read the New Testament. Often our problem is, even though we don't recognize it in, in the instant we're doing it, we're often really lazy about our interpretation of Scripture. We really are. We, we don't look up the cross-references, do we? we? We don't dig in a little deeper. We don't have patience to keep reading until it all fits together better. But that will come back to bite us when some attractive false teaching comes along and, and says, Hey, I have the answers. And you haven't bothered to get the answers, have you? <laughs> so don't do that. Understand this is all God's book. And as we compare Scripture with Scripture, He'll give us more light. That's the way this works. So I hope that's helpful. Small paragraph, but very important. Let's bow together, shall we? Father, help us to actually be people who love the Bible and who love it enough to work hard on it and understanding it. And help us to be sure we, don't, we haven't set up some artificial um, interpreter as the infallible interpreter th through which we can understand Scripture. Help us never to put a man in that place, even a pastor or a preacher we really love, as the one who interprets Scripture for us. Help us to be like the Bereans and search the scriptures ourselves to see whether these things are so and how they fit together. Strengthen your people in their resolve uh, to handle your word correctly and in their love for your word as it's unfolded and gives more and more light. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.